Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, Al Monitor, where each week we talk to the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of Al Monitor, and this week our guest is Noor Swade, general partner of Global Ventures, an international venture capital firm with offices in Dubai, Cairo, Jeddah, Riyadh, Tunis, and Lagos. Noor was previously the Chief Investment Officer at the Dubai Future Foundation and Managing Partner at Leap Ventures. Prior to that, Noor had joined her family business, Deepa, where she scaled the business tenfold, executed four cross-border acquisitions, and led the region's first IPO on the London Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ Dubai, achieving a billion-dollar-plus valuation. Noor also founded Zen Yoga, the first yoga studio in the Middle East and North Africa, which grew to become the region's largest wellness chain before successfully exiting to a private equity firm. Noor sits on the board of MIT Sloan and other major companies. She has been recognized by Forbes magazine on its list of the world's top 50 women in tech and by Arabian Business Magazine on its list of the 100 most powerful Arab women. Noor has also received the Arab Woman Award for Finance. My conversation with Noor Swade begins now. Noor, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you for having me. You wrote on LinkedIn about the maturation of the Middle East and North Africa's tech ecosystem that international venture dollars are comprising larger and larger shares of total funding and that the region's entrepreneurial ecosystem, and I'm quoting you now, is steadily turning into a global tech hub. And you conclude that it will not be long until the region has its TikTok moment. You mentioned a number of innovators in the region, Aero Labs, Tribal, Fresha, as illustrative of this trend. Tell us about that trend and what's changed in the Middle East and North Africa that puts it at the cusp of such dramatic change in being a global tech hub? In other words, why the Middle East and, and why now? So I think that's a great question. And to set some sort of context, when we take a look at the region across Middle East Africa, we're talking about one and a half billion people. 50% of them are under the age of 30, maybe 32, depending which countries you want to include or exclude. And you have one of the highest digital penetration rates in the world, which you know is probably a result of such a young population. But so you take a look at this population in this market, and historically, there's been a lot of emulation. So something that worked in the West or in the East in China, and then we would copy and then do something similar, but a little bit more relevant to regional challenges. Then what's happened recently is that those learnings have allowed us to catch up and then leapfrog. And you saw that many years ago in Kenya when you had M-Pesa, which was effectively a leapfrog, which was saying, we don't have any financial infrastructure like banking. So we're gonna skip the whole, let's build banks and regulate them and go straight to mobile money. And that allowed us in the region to really innovate, to think we don't, it's not that we're trying to think outside the box, it's that there is no box. And we've seen that start to happen increasingly frequently. So it started with FinTech, 
Um, and that, you know, was really financial inclusion and how do we bank the unbanked, which most people are very, you know, familiar with that challenge that the world had. And now we go to healthcare inclusion and you get to a point where, you know, how do we provide access to healthcare for people that don't have it? It's just one example. The region has less than one doctor per thousand people. You know, Europe and the U.S. are at four and a half. So just like we didn't fix or address financial inclusion by building banks, we're not going to fix healthcare inclusion by building hospitals. And we're not going to fix education by building schools because we have 150 million out-of-school children, which is half of the world's out of school. And so now that the regional entrepreneurs have caught up on the emulation, have figured out technology, technology is more scalable, more ubiquitous, um, you can start building on cloud very affordably, which you couldn't do 10 years ago. And starting to think that way as entrepreneurs, we can start to address these problems, these challenges in ways that really tackle the problem that we have with the lack of infrastructure and the lack of regulation that exists. And that leapfrogging is starting to happen increasingly, like the examples I've mentioned, like Proximy, which is an augmented reality platform for hospitals. So you can stream in a surgeon from anywhere in the world into any hospital to guide the practicing surgeon that may not have the specialty required to do the surgery into the surgery. And you reduce fatalities and complications. And that's an innovation that happened in the region by a female surgeon that then has the patents and has scaled globally. And you take a look at the discrepancy between, for example, Boston and rural America. And some types of surgeries, it's 3x, the complications and fatalities are three times higher. But if you could stream in the right surgeon, instead of maybe having to fly them over and wait for that and pay for that, and it might not, there not, might not be enough time to save that life, if you could just stream them in, which now you can do using Proximy, and they've partnered up with Teladoc, and they've partnered up with Johnson Johnson for medical device implants. But that came out of the region, because the reality was that there's no way you're going to get the right surgeon in the right place. So let's try to fix that problem. Let's not try to optimize it 2%. And so the region's come a long way. Technology's allowed us to build more global companies out of the region to tackle global problems that are simply more dire over here. Noor, you've been a leader in these uh, technological approaches that you were just discussing in terms of health and wellness, as well as education. Tell us what's been some of the cultural advances and social advances that you've witnessed over the years that have allowed the MENA region to be receptive and, and hubs for increasing health and wellness innovation. And what do you see as the next trend in those sectors? There are several things. We still struggle in the region with very high diabetes rates. But for example, the governments here are very supportive of that and saying, well, what could work on the prevention side as well as the cure slash pharmaceutical side. And that approach has been key. And that because of the average age of the population and the skewed demographics towards a younger population, we're very fortunate that we're able to come in and say, what works in prevention? What works in wellness? What works in health? How do we exercise? How do we embrace the culture of exercise rather than just import the fast food, which is what's happened in other parts of the world. And so when you put the two together, you see that culturally people are saying, yes, let's exercise, let's do great things, let's look to, you know, even the government's missions, like the mission to Mars that the UAE has, are very forward-thinking, very visionary. And so it only makes sense that we take care of our population in a forward-thinking, visionary way, which is let's talk about prevention before we talk about cures. Let's talk about health and wellness. 
let's have an Ironman in Dubai or two or three of them, you know, and six triathlons every year for, for this part of the world. Um, and I've heard there's an Ironman coming up in Egypt and, and let's embrace that part of Western culture and see how we can participate and then take it even further. So Dubai has, for example, one of the longest bike tracks in the world, which is in the desert, um, hiking trails and so on, which people often come to the city and they see very little and it's very much the tall buildings and the malls. But underneath that, there's a huge wellness and health and sport culture in this part of the world. You wrote last year that it is often crisis which drives tectonic shifts in industry. You call it platformization. Now, we are, of course, seeing dramatic innovations in health and education as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And as you just pointed out, some of these trend lines were already moving in the, in the direction that has allowed such innovation and adaptation. But what do you see coming next? And do you expect this trend to slow as the COVID pandemic recedes? Well, not really. And I think that's a platformization, as, as we call it, because there wasn't really a word that I could find, um, was really a way to say that anything that becomes a commodity, ultimately a platform gets built on top of so that you can identify which of, which of these services that are in effect commodities um, is closest to you or is cheapest or is best suited for you. And so we've seen companies even in the last week, if I think of some of the companies that we've seen that have platformized um, surgeries and aesthetic clinics, right? So effectively there are so many clinics that do these things across the world. Um, so laser treatments and so on and so forth. How do I find the one that's most suitable for what I'm looking for in my zip code and with a five-star rating, right? So when these clinics and these kind of laser treatments as a very basic example, were, um, you know, were, were new and novel and specialists, people would know about them. Once they become a commodity, you can search through them, you can start filtering. And the same is true for everything. So even if you think about online learning, once that becomes a commodity, because there are so many platforms, then you'll need some sort of, so there are so many options. You need a platform ultimately to say, well, what's the best option for me? I need to be able to aggregate all of these and filter through them and see what works and then go between them if I want to. And so the same is true for offline, like these laser clinics and aesthetic clinics and surgery areas as online, which is ed tech. Um, the same was true for Airbnb, which I talked about and for Uber. So as anything becomes a commodity, healthcare, education, even you know, financial inclusion, as we think about it, all of these financial services that you know, are now becoming commodities. So in the beginning, neobanks, there were one or two. Now there's 10 or 12. So you'll need to go somewhere and say, okay, well, which of these aggregates the best services from each? Which of these is best suited for me? Referring to crisis-driven change, one area that comes to mind in the region is a, a trend toward clean energy. The Gulf oil producers are committed to carbon reduction. These were very dramatic and impactful statements that have been made recently by uh, the leadership in the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. Global demand for oil remains high. The COVID pandemic is rece receding. Uh, do you see a trend toward clean energy tech investment to continue and that those commitments that the leadership in the region have made to carbon neutral or carbon zero uh, are going to, to stay on course? 
I do. And I'll, I'll defer to an investment that we made about a year ago as a VC firm, uh, which is a company called Red Sea Farms. And the patent that was developed there, again, patents developed in the region um, that are changing the world, was one where we need to use 95% less energy to desalinate water for the purpose of vertical farming. And so you think about not only is that environment, it's also food security. It's also, it touches on so many things from agri-tech to environment tech to, and you think about feeding the world. And now all of a sudden you can do that using so much less energy with a patent that was created in the region. And they're supplying one supermarket after the other, the other because they're supplying all these vertical farms with the infrastructure now that they need to be able to do this so much more cheaply and feed these populations in such an environmentally friendly way compared to how it was done before. And so when you think about how something as basic as let's find a way to do this so much better um, in this part of the world has so many effects downstream, it, it's one small thing that is happening. And then you take that and you magnify it by all these other things that are happening. I see that there is, it's a huge shift. We expect that shift to continue in that manner. We know that the governments and the leadership are behind this and everybody agrees. And again, I go back to, you have a very young population that demands this. So it's, it is a population that says we want to clean our planet and half your population sits in that under 30 bracket that is demanding this. Or you also wrote recently that this year, 2021, looks to be a promising year for exits. And I'm going to quote from your piece. You said there is an, an upward trend is poised to continue as international interest in regional opportunities increases and regional investors come to terms with acquisitions as a more rewarding path than building from scratch. Tell us more about this trend. And as the year winds down, is that trend line on track or has it changed? So we have had four exits in the last four months um, between July and, and now, and we're speaking now in early November. Um, so we've had four exits out of our portfolio. And some of them indeed have been an acquisition by an old family and um, player traditional industry, buying a company that has grown to about a series C size um, for a good amount of, of money in terms of what they're paying to access the opportunity online after trying several times to do it themselves. So that, that indeed has panned out and we will see more of that. We just had Reef, which is an American or US-based a dark kitchen um, company come in and acquire two companies here that are also in the dark kitchen space. Um, and then the other exits we've had in our portfolio are international investors coming into the region and investing in new rounds and wanting um, to, to buy out some of the existing investors, so secondaries on our part. So we have had a mixture already this year, all in Q3. It was a very good quarter. Um, and indeed, we are seeing an increasing number of exits in multiple forms, M&A, secondaries, and buyouts. We're looking at the global picture. How do you assess the MENA region relative to, say, Latin America, Asia, other parts of Africa, as a magnet for international tech investment? And perhaps relatedly, which of those other regions do you find most exciting and why? I think there's a lot of parallels in the global south. So what we saw in Latin America three years ago, we're seeing here now in some verticals like FinTech, what we may have seen 
um, in logistics sex and last mile delivery in Southeast Asia a few years ago. Again, we're seeing here now. So we have tended to be laggards in the way that we adopt and, and innovate and, and bring in technology. And that's why it's an opportunity because you can learn from what has worked in the rest of the global South and therefore what is likely to work here and what do we need to kind of adjust a little bit. So that, that's why this is a very interesting market. At the same time, some parts of, or some industries and some parts of society need a lot more help in our part of the world, like in Africa, where you have education, where it is and infrastructure, where it is. And regulation seems to be a lot easier to deal with in some of these markets because the need is so dire and the leadership is aware of that need. And so they're more likely to accommodate innovation before other parts of the world. Um, and so then that's another opportunity. So really, as we look to what can we learn from around the world, it's everywhere, Andrew. It's everywhere we look, we can learn from, from you know, South America, from East Asia. Um, we can take a look everywhere and learn and we can be inspired. And I think that the markets um, are interesting across the world. If you, I had to pick one, it would be very difficult because I think that each one tackles things a little bit differently um, and very relevant to where they are. Thinking of the MENA region as a, an innovator and emerging global tech hub, with regard to partnerships and investments in the tech sector, how do you see China and India? And what are the areas and synergies that are most interesting to you in these countries? Um, I think the region has always looked you know, west and east. So we've been inspired by both, we've partnered with both. Um, you know, and east, we take a look at China and India. And again, some of the roots in the region go way back to you know, where these markets um, used to trade with the region very actively. And so I think there's always room to be inspired. We take a look at what Baiju has done in India on the education front, and that's very inspirational. Um, and we, you know, we learn from everywhere. The region's always been a melting pot of cultures. And we learn from China in some ways, we learn from India in other ways. And we bring in new innovations into the region, we try them out, and we really see what sticks. Tell us a little about how TechWadi, which you've been involved with, and perhaps other platforms, are bridging the gap between Silicon Valley and MENA, and how that has benefited both sides, Silicon Valley and MENA. So it's definitely benefited MENA in the sense that we're able to take some learnings from Silicon Valley, recruit people, and create this bridge, really build the bridge that, um, that allows people from the Bay Area to see what's going on in the region. And maybe have them interested to come back or to support or to serve on some boards. Um, and then from the regional perspective, it's interesting because you have the inspiration and you have the network access. So as some of the companies in the region want to go globally, this becomes a landing pad for them to come into the US market um, in terms of the network that they can build more easily. And it's important to build these cross-cultural connections, just you know, everywhere in the world does it. So you have a lot of the Indian diaspora or the Chinese diaspora um, in the US um, and those, those become landing pads for any Indian or Chinese entrepreneurs aspiring to enter the US market or to learn from them or even to recruit from there. Um, and that's what we've managed to achieve with TechWadi. Noor, this has been great. I've learned a lot from you. It's, it's been an exciting conversation hearing about all the great things you're doing uh, and hearing about how the MENA region is emerging as a global tech hub and innovator. Thank you for joining us today on, on the Middle East. Thank you for having me. 
We will return after this break. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guest today, Noor Swade, and our production team of Phil Palabro of Almonitor, and Beowulf Rockland of Two Squared Media Productions. We will be back next week, and if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three of our podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, and this week Gilles' guest is former U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Martin Indyk. And Martin will be talking with Gilles about his new book, Master of the Game about Henry Kissinger's Middle East diplomacy. And On Israel with Ben Caspit and Ben's guest this week is David Makovsky, one of the top American experts on U.S.-Israel relations and the Palestinian issue. And of course, we'll be back next week on this podcast on the Middle East, where Amber and Zaman will be your host. Thanks to all of you for listening, and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the region at lmonitor.com. Mm-hmm.